I've learned already some things, quite a few things, um, as a dad. And so I just needed to put a few disclaimers out there to start with. One of the, the transformations has been when I'm standing up now, I sort of tend to sway backward and forth. Uh, it's a well-practiced reflex, so if I happen to start swaying backward and forth this morning, then that's just wanted to let you know why. Um, my, perhaps my standards of personal hygiene have maybe gone down a little bit. I, I remember just very recently that if um, a young child went to the toilet on me, I would have maybe changed my clothes and, you know, made a few different, um, you know, alterations to what I was doing. But now it's just like part of, I'm just getting used to it. Everyone that knows, every parent's like, yeah, yeah, I, I get it, I get it. And I might accidentally refer to Anna um, as mummy. You know, mummy and daddy have, have replaced uh, whatever other names we used to f- refer to each other as. Um, even when Levi's in bed, sometimes I sort of say, you know, will mummy go and like get me a cup of tea? But she does the same thing. It happens for both of us. But having Levi has really just reinforced and reminded us again that there is no such thing as an individual we are part of a shared community. We, are, we share experiences. We share in pain. We share in hard times. And, and this is the second time of my life when something really great and ex- exciting and excellent has happened. And then following that, I've just spent like a big block of time just telling people, just sharing the good news of it. You know, when I got engaged, that was another time that we had a big block of like contacting people and letting people know. But this is, this is even more so, and the news didn't only explode out of Anna and I, it explodes out of our brothers and sisters and out of our, grand, or out of our parents who are now grandparents, and it didn't take long before we started to hear from people who we yet hadn't had a chance to contact, you know, that, that word just traveled around so quickly. Can you imagine the opposite? Can you imagine something really exciting and life-changing happening, and you're just keeping it to yourself? Can you imagine even being indifferent? Imagine having something as as big and life-changing as having a child and just just being indifferent and not telling people. Imagine like meeting that colleague that you work with every day at the supermarket and you've got your child with you. This this is the child example. And, oh, who's this? They ask you. They ask me. Oh, this is my son. Oh, you know, you didn't talk about, you know, you haven't mentioned him. Oh, okay. Oh, how old is he? Oh, he's six. You know, we can't imagine that. That couldn't happen, right? But I wonder how accurately that does describe our attitude toward sharing our faith with others, to, to sharing the hope that we have, the hope that we've found. Because as much joy as it's been already to, lay, to raise Levi over this last seven and a little bit weeks, I'm counting. He's just a baby, though. He's just a baby. We have high hopes for his life, but our hope isn't in him. And sharing your faith can be just as natural, just as exciting as sharing the good news of a new child. If we will learn to step out and see and take the opportunities that are present every day. We're going to read this morning from Matthew 9, Matthew 9 verses 9 to 13. I love turning around and seeing the thing because I hadn't confirmed with Luke that he'd got my email. So Luke is so reliable. Can we read this together? If you've got a Bible and you wish to to open it to have a look, I think the words are going to come up. This is the story of the calling of Matthew. Verse 9, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. 
When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come to call, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Lord, I just pray now as I start, Father, that I would share something of your heart today. And I just pray, Lord, that anything that's just of me and of my ideas, Father, would just fall away and just be forgotten. And, 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 and I pray that everything that is of you, Father God, would stick and ring true and that would be called and carried and remembered, Father, in your name, Father. So Matthew 9 contains these three accounts of Jesus challenging the Pharisees. The first, he challenges the rules and the behavior around the Sabbath by healing a paralytic man. The second is this story about him challenging the rules around association, about who people should and shouldn't hang out with and what it means to have a meal with somebody. And, and the last account is uh, him challenging the rules and the behavior set up around fasting. And to set the scene in this interaction with Matthew, we see Jesus interacting with the hated rich. You know, it probably wasn't too difficult to hate a tax collector. Not only were they siding with the, the rule uh, that you were being oppressed by, but they were getting really nice and rich off of it. It was comfortable. He's not only a trader, but he's a trader making a lot of money. I'm pretty sure, like, that's pretty unpopular everywhere. And we see Jesus entering Matthew's world, Matthew's community. And the first thing that we're struck by is the simplicity of the call. The call, follow me. Just two words. How much is encapsulated in those two words? Follow me. To follow is to copy, to physically walk after, to emulate yourself after. And the first thing that Matthew does after hearing this call is that he gathers an audience. In uh, Matthew 9 it says, while... It says, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house. But this story is in each of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in Luke, it says, Matthew threw a banquet in Jesus' honor. Immediately after the call, Matthew gathered an audience. And Jesus' actions here are scandalous. To eat with somebody is to say that you approve of them, to say that you will uh, be part of their community. And I don't know what your reaction is when you read about the Pharisees in the Bible. I don't know if you just think, oh, those crazy Pharisees, not getting it again. But I want to invite us this morning to think about where we might be stuck in our ways, to stuck in the established ways that we've sort of decided are the right, exactly the right thing. Because the Pharisees had systemized everything. They had the law, this is how you obey the law, down to the dotted I and the cross of the T. The story that governed how they lived in the world went like this. I'm part of a chosen race. To, to be right in the world and to be right with God is to do exactly as I'm doing, to interpret the law exactly as we have. Everyone should be living like me, but I'm actually doing it. And so there was the whole of the pride thing as well. And Jesus steps into this and challenges them with radical compassion, with mercy, with reaching to outsiders. He heals on the Sabbath. And he takes up an invitation to a meal with sinners. Verse 11 says, The Pharisees saw this. They asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? 
Notice that it doesn't say, the Pharisees saw Jesus doing this and thought that that was quite strange. So they waited for just a quiet little moment to ask Jesus by himself in private. It doesn't say that they saw this and they just contemplated it and thought, oh, maybe there's a good reason why Jesus would be, would be doing what he's doing now. To put it another way, I, I would like to say that the Pharisees saw something and gossiped about it. What do you gossip You can tell so much about a person by what they choose to talk about. Does your speech uplift people? Does your speech encourage people? Or do you focus on faults and failings? You know, we have friends that come around for dinner who are just so excited about the life and faith that they're living that they come over. I'm going to, sorry if this embarrasses you, Chris, but Chris has come over and he's come during like a time of hardship in his life, but he's so full of the love of God and he's like talking about what he's done and, and, and how he's moving through and how God is with him in something. And we have friends that come over for dinner and that's just so exciting to hear. It's not the only thing that we talk about, but it just spills out of them and it really encourages us. And other friends, they come around and, you know, they've got their business projects and the things that they're working on and And faith sort of seems to be just like a cursory little interest on the side for them. And I I guess to the far extreme, I'm sure that we all have those people that we know who seem most passionate maybe about complaining or about dissecting other people's faults. Evangelism and the early church is a historical account of of the spread of the gospel in the first three centuries after Christ. And it talks about how the gospel was spread formally to the Jews and uh, to the Gentiles and and some of the things that made the spread of the gospel so possible at the time uh, that Jesus died. And it also talks about how the gospel was spread informally, just through the regular men and women. And it describes it like this, about talking about the regular people. They were scattered from their base in Jerusalem, and they went everywhere, spreading the good news which had brought joy, release, and a new life to themselves. This must often have not been formal preaching, but the informal chattering to friends and chance acquaintances, in homes, wine shops, on walks, and around market stalls. They went everywhere gossiping the gospel. They did it naturally, enthusiastically, and with the conviction of those who were not paid to say that sort of thing. I love that phrase, they gossip the gospel. Can we be people who catch a hold of that and are people who gossip the gospel? This is a crude drawing found uh, in the quarters of the imperial page boys in Rome in the third century. It's considered to be the earliest uh, artwork or, or depiction that's ever been found of Jesus. And it depicts a young boy in an attitude of worship with one hand upraised. And the object of his devotion is a figure on a cross with like a donkey or a horse's head with an inscription that reads, Alexa Menos worships his God. Think of this maybe as an ancient scrawling on a bathroom wall. It's clearly mocking this young man who has left his friends under no illusion as to what he worships and what he stands for. It's a spiteful drawing. It's, it's depicting somebody's God with the head of a horse is, 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 def, is, is truly mocking. Underneath, um, somebody in another style of handwriting has written, Elixir Menos is faithful. If somebody was to make a crude drawing of, of your life and what you worship, what would they write? What would they draw? What would it be? 
so people know what you stand for and what you worship. Verse 12 says, On hearing this, Jesus said, The Pharisees ask Jesus' disciples a question, and who answers? Jesus. Have you given up the job of protecting your own reputation yet? As culture and Christianity diverge in the Western world and in New Zealand, the good news of Christianity is going to become more unusual, maybe more offensive. But to be honest, the the good news of Christianity has always been offensive. It's offended people across all of time. The idea that there's just one way that is right, there's just one way to truth, has always offended people. And the early Christian was accused, counterintuitively, of being an atheist. In the Roman setting of the day, where part of the pageantry of civic life was to go through a whole lot of... uh, just ways that you would honor this goddess or this deity and you would go through these rituals and this sacrifices and that was very commonplace to all of what it meant to be a member of the citizenry. The fact that these Christians turned away and shunned all of that and, and saying that actually I've, you know, we've, we've found the true way to truth um, was, was totally weird. To the Romans they were called atheists because one God compared to the many may as well be zero. To gossip the gospel requires us to give up the job of protecting our own reputation, just as his disciple, Jesus' disciples did. How do we do that? I want to give three suggestions. I'm sure that you could come up with lots of suggestions. But the first one is to give up second guessing. And when I say second guessing, what I mean by that is the ability to anticipate that when I get into a conversation with Peter Muller, exactly how he's going to respond to what I'm going to say, and then to edit what I was actually going to say because of his reaction. To second guess is to take responsibility for somebody else's response. You know, when I talk with youth about sharing their faith with people, uh, when, they're, when they're at the younger end of things, when we talk about who are your friends, who are you sharing with, most often they say, oh, I just don't know how to, I don't know how to get into that sort of conversation. And as they get older and as, um, yeah, at the, at the older end of the spectrum, the response is much more likely to be, oh, they don't want to know. My friends wouldn't want to know. They second guess people. And I've found that most people are interested. I don't know about you. I've found most people are interested. One Saturday, I went into work uh, to have a quiet place. Anna and I were living in a one-bedroom um, place, so like escape was quite helpful. And um, sometimes, sometimes. And I went into work and I was working on, uh, we were sharing on baptism. There was a couple of people getting baptized. And that, you know, baptism, a message on baptism contains the core of the Christian message in it. And it wasn't part of our culture at work to be in on a Saturday very often. But one of my workmates came in with his partner, also looking for a quiet sanctuary to do some stuff. And we got talking and then they heard that I said, I'm preparing for this thing tomorrow. And they demanded that, okay, well, you have to give a practice on me. And I was like a bit apprehensive. I was, you know, this is the full, the, the whole heart of the Christian faith here. And I knew that I was going to be trapping them for 12 minutes because I'd, I'd timed it out. I knew how long I had to talk. But it was a great opportunity. And I, I ran through and I told them. And, and afterwards, I wasn't quite sure what their response would be, but they were really enthusiastic. And, and one of their comments was, oh, I've always wondered what that was about. 
So I've found people are interested. In, in South Auckland last year, I got into a conversation with a man who, runs a four, who was running a Foursquare, and uh, he was a Sikh. And he was really, really proud that Sikhs were the only ones in India who were fighting back against the Muslims and standing up um, for Sikhness. Um, that might be not accurate. I have to go and ask him. But we got into this cool conversation, and he said, oh, if you're asking me, you must be a Christian. And so I'd, you know, that didn't go too much further. But I was so glad to have had the conversation. It's useful to let your anticipation skills let you know how to say something, but not that you say something. I found that people make it pretty clear when you've crossed their boundaries. I'm pretty confident that people let you know. My second suggestion is to pretend you're a baby. Pretend you're a baby. Levi is absolutely flooded with like positive love and affirmation. He swims in a sea of like, who's a beautiful boy? Who's so handsome? Who's so clever? It's my baby voice. Maybe it's not quite. What a handsome man. And it's not just from me and Anna. It's not just even from our family. Like we will go down to the local shop in Pinehaven and then the person there will start go, oh, beautiful. What a beautiful little boy. But I was thinking, how different are those words to the words that we say about ourselves? How different are those words to the, to the talk that we have in our head? We need to be people who encourage each other. We need to pretend that we're babies and encourage ourselves. A writer and pastor and speaker who I really love uh, is called Tim Keller. He's um, written a whole bunch of books. And in a question and answer, he was asked, how do I get, you know, how do you share the gospel well? I've taken, it's, it's maybe not the most joyful answer, but I've taken a lot of encouragement from it. He said, by sharing it poorly over and over again until you get good at it. A few months ago, out of the blue, I was offered this opportunity to catch up with a guy who does ministry in New Zealand and a bit overseas. And he like, had contacted me, and I was just really excited about it. I was stoked. One of the great joys of my life is to just catch up with people and have a chat and have coffee and, and just hear their stories. It was single-handedly the most awkward conversation of my entire life. You know, like if someone asks you a good question and you've really got to think about it, Imagine like those cavernous pauses without the question beforehand. It was so awkward. It was so awkward that I had to ring Anna as soon as it had finished to confess just how awkward it had been. But you know what I think now and what I thought afterwards? Even when I like tell that story, I just feel this like feeling of awkwardness. I, why should I be the only person who has a perfect conversation every time? Why should I be the only one in the world who doesn't have a bad experience when they expected a good one? Why should I be the only one who gets on really well with every single person that I meet? We've got to be people who encourage and reassure ourselves when things don't go as expected. Pretend you're a baby and you'll hear what your heavenly father says about you. Lastly, last, last suggestion out of three. And this is a little bit different, but of late I've been having communion uh, really quite often um, by myself um, overlooking the valley or in a secluded place just to think about it and to um, contemplate because when you understand the significance of what communion represents, you can't take it lightly. You can't take it without examining yourself, without realizing how much you need what it represents. 
But most of all of late, it's, it's been the realization of how little I ever had to do with it. If there was never anything in me that uh, is, was worthy or, or deserving of God's love and God's grace, then the things that I do that I wish that I didn't do can't disqualify me either. And that's been really super freeing to me. The more that I know the freedom of, of the freeness of grace, the more I'm, I'm actually able to love God and receive his love for me. And the more that I'm able to realize how much God loves me, the more I want to and, and seek to share that love with other people. Ultimately, you can only give up the job of protecting your own reputation if you're placing it into better hands. Jesus carries on his answer. It is not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not to come to call the righteous, but sinners. It's not the healthy that need the doctor, but but the sick. I was imagining if you went to the hospital to get something fixed up, to have a procedure or an operation, and you just never left. Imagine how quickly a hospital would cease absolutely to function as a hospital as you just stayed there and, and took up residence. You know, operating theatres would become movie theatres in no time. And Jesus says, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And the plain fact is that unless your life agrees with your words, it's not really going to count for much. Ernest Gordon was a soldier in the Second World War. He was a Scottish soldier, and he was captured by the Japanese. And like many who were captured in the Pacific, he was forced to work on the construction of the Thai Burma Railway. Each day, he, in in the very baking hot sun with thousands of others, had to cut through jungle to construct this railway just with hand tools. They worked on pathetic rations of just plain white rice, and they were pushed to exhaustion and starvation and disease and, for many, death by their captors. And if this wasn't enough, the desperation of the situation resulted in just a toxic environment and camp where people would steal from each other, where people would rob each other just to survive. They would do that for any meager extra thing they could get their hands on. He says that the atmosphere that they lived in was increasingly poisoned by selfishness. And in this environment, Ernest too became unwell. And he became so unwell that when he put out the request to sleep in the morgue because it was cooler, they said yes. You know, that's how far gone he was. And it was in that environment that he started to receive visits from two fellow Scottish soldiers who would come and talk to him and they would dress his wounds and they would tend to his ulcers and they would give him all the comfort that they could. And this relationship developed and they began to share with him hope, hope for a future beyond the war. Sharing hope of of their lives and what they were looking forward to but also to share scripture, to share their faith, to share the life of God with him. And against all of the odds, Ernest became, he got, gradually got stronger and recovered and he became well. And he remarks that it was acts of selflessness 
that spread throughout the camp faster than news of anything else. Jesus says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And he's quoting the prophet Hosea. You know, when we think of mercy, or at least when I think of mercy, I think of maybe being let off something, having to beg for mercy, maybe to a king or or to somebody who uh, you're in debt to or something like that. Maybe that's your picture of God. Maybe that's your paradigm of Christianity this morning. Maybe in your mind, God is, is an angry overlord who you, you need to beg for pardon and beg for mercy. And I don't want to say this morning, that's not, that's not our God. God is a God of judgment. We do have to give an account of our lives um, when we meet God or when he comes. But this word that we translate in English as mercy is the Greek word alios. And Elias means kindness or goodwill toward the miserable and afflicted, joined with a desire to relieve them. Kindness or goodwill toward the miserable and afflicted, joined with a desire to relieve them. We don't have a God who looks down uninterested or angrily from heaven. We, we serve a God who looked down and saw the affliction and the pain of the people And he didn't only just have compassion and want to relieve them. He came down himself, became one of us, and gave up his life for us to pay the debt that we owed. It's like this. There's a chapter in Ernest Gordon's book called The Miracle Over the River Kwai. And he describes that the transformation of camp, because like this toxic environment absolutely transformed He describes that that started off with an outstanding act of self-sacrifice, one that spread around quicker than everything else. It was of a story of another another Scottish soldier. The day's work had ended, and the Japanese guard was, uh, everybody had lined up, and they were counting uh, the materials that they had with them. And they were about to be dismissed when the Japanese soldier declared that a shovel was missing. He accused everybody that, they were, that somebody had stolen it to sell to the ties. And he strode up and down the line of these men, denouncing them for their stupidity, their arrogance, and most of all, their ungratefulness toward uh, the emperor who was providing uh, for them. And he started to get more and more enraged, and he started yelling out, all die, all die, shrieking at them. And to show that he meant what he was saying, he put his rifle to his shoulder, pulled back the bolt, and began to look down the sights. And just as he did that, one man stepped forward and said, I did it. The guard unleashed all of his whipped up hatred. He beat him with his fists, he kicked the prisoner, but the The Argyle Scottish uh, soldier stood rigidly at attention. Blood began to pour out of his face, but he didn't make any sound. And the fact that he didn't make a sound even seemed to goad the Japanese person all the more into more rage until he picked up his rifle by the barrel, lifted it high over his head, and with a final howl, he brought the butt down on the skull of the Argyle, who sank to the ground and didn't move. When the tools were counted again, when they got back to the storehouse, there was no shovels missing. 
Jesus has stepped forward for us to take responsibility for the shovel that we have actually taken, the wrong that we've actually done, so that we too can have freedom from captivity to sin and death. It's illegal to shoot a paintball gun in Germany until you're 18 years old. I discovered that this year we had a student come and uh, an exchange student come and be part of our youth group for a term. And he came just as we'd played the last Zest Desk of News, which reported our events of going to uh, play paintball. And he demanded or uh, made it very clear that he hoped that he would be, would be going again so that he could take home that trophy experience to be able to tell his friends, like, yeah, I've done it first. So we gathered together on a rainy Saturday afternoon at Manor Park. I don't know if you've um, experienced paintball, uh, paintball game before, but there's sort of two parts to it. There's having the actual game, and then there's like the talking about it and debriefing afterwards, the comparison of, you know, maybe you want to have an explanation for your ridiculous tactics. Maybe you want to compare uh, how many times you got hit in the head, that sort of thing. Because there's always a spectrum of commitment on the paintball field. There's always a spectrum of commitment. If you actually want to win, one of the good ways of doing that is by running forward and making yourself quite obvious and soaking up as much of the uh, fire as possible. Because paintballs are quite expensive. You can't like really afford to carry on and just buy more and more and more. But this sort of strategy is also quite expensive because sometimes it really hurts. It really hurts. And so with this in mind, the student was very far toward the conservative end of the spectrum. Uh, and about midway through the third game rang out this elated cry. I got shot. I got shot. I finally got shot. He'd finally had the true paintball experience, which isn't shooting someone. It's getting shot because that's how you, you really know you're in the game. He was elated. And just as elated, if not more, was a member of our youth leadership team who actually had a chance to catch up with the same guy in Germany. While uh, this guy was in our youth group, we'd talked about faith, we'd shared about things, and the, the night that we had set up to actually talk about the gospel, uh, he hadn't been able to come for some reason. And Luke uh, and I had been catching up for coffee. We'd catch up for coffee often to do the um, Paul Barnabas Timothy thing. And he, Luke had been saying over, over the past little while, hey, like, We'd been strategizing. I, I don't seem to be able to get below the surface with my friends to actually share like what I believe and what I talk about and share the gospel. And so Luke, from his holiday, sends this email. Had an, awesome, had an awesome conversation with a person a few days ago and started talking about goal setting on the train, something I've been learning recently after avoiding it most of my life, which led to me sharing my personal experience with telling yourself the truth and truth coaches which finally led to talking about what Christians believe. Because we believe in absolute truth, which enables us to overcome obstacles and base ourselves on the right thing with truth coaches from Scripture. A miraculous conversation where I was able to share a lot of what I've learned in the past year or two to help him with quite similar situations and struggles. All through, he was very curious, receptive, and inquisitive. If you're willing to use what God has done in your life as you seek him, you will have a platform from which to gossip the gospel. Matthew hears the call of Jesus, the simple call to follow him. He takes it up and he turns from his life and immediately he gathers an audience for Jesus. He begins to emulate him, to model his life after him. 
And our responsibility, having heard the call, is to do the same. Because we never want to be people who just get stuck in our ways, thinking that we know it all, thinking that we've arrived where we are. And to do that, we need to be kind and encourage ourselves. We need to pretend uh, that we're babies and nurture ourselves with encouraging speech. We need to give up the job of protecting our own reputation, to stop second-guessing, using our anticipation skills to think about how we say something, but not that we say it. And we need to get in touch with grace, spending time meditating on things that change our heart, change what we love. Because if we're going to give up the job of protecting our own reputation, we're going to need to be placing it into better hands. And all that we say needs to be backed up by lives that say it too. Lives that are characterized by mercy. Not just regular, I'll let you off something mercy, but kindness to those who are afflicted and a true desire and action toward relieving them. Because that's the mercy that our Lord showed to us. I'd like to finish with one last story from the Second World War. On the 27th of May, 1940, the small craft section of the British Ministry of Shipping received instruction to collect every boat they could that could navigate shallow waters. They were about to attempt a rescue mission. More than 300,000 British and French soldiers were trapped in the south of France with the sea at their back and the German army advancing toward them at the front. And Christopher Nolan has made the, uh, the movie Dunkirk recently, and he's retold the story from three perspectives. There are, there's, there's three sort of narratives that go through. The first uh, is from the air, as uh, a pilot uh, defends boats and uh, defends the men on the beach. The second is, is from the beach, as men are just sitting there waiting in queues to be rescued. And the third is from a civilian sea captain who takes up this call to take his craft across the channel to participate in the rescue mission. From the beach, the men are just sitting ducks. All they can do is wait in an endless queue. There's one wharf on the far side of the beach that hasn't been destroyed yet, and there's one uh, Navy transporter there, and they just have to wait in a queue for hours until they have their chance to board. And eventually in the film, uh, the pier is destroyed and the ship is sunk. As the flotilla of little ships that's been collected come, who don't need the pier, over the course of 10 days, more than 300,000 men are rescued from that beach. And many people say that without that, the war would have ended differently. And it struck me as I watched that, what a profound picture of what we could be as the church. You know, all of these ships that came for the rescue mission were different. There was like the fishing boats, the river steamer, the little pleasure craft that people use on the weekend. Each of these ships have different capacities, different engines. They've got different purposes. But they're absolutely united in their mission. And their mission is to go and get the people who are under enemy fire. They're stranded and they need rescuing and bringing home. Will we as a church take up that mandate? Will we learn to gossip the gospel? I'd like to pray to finish, if that's okay. If you would bow your heads with me. Father God, I thank you, Father, that you have rescued me, that you have rescued us, Father. 
and that your rescue and the offer of rescue is open to anyone who will take it up, Lord Jesus. I pray, Lord, that we would know that your rescue is complete in our guts, Lord God, not just in our hearts, not just in our heads, Lord, but in the deep things, Lord, the deep places inside of us. And Father, I I pray, Lord God, that we would be a people and that I would be a person, Father God, who knows the truth of the rescue that is on offer and, and the urgency of the mission, Lord God, that I would use my life and all of the resources that I have, Father God, to, to reach those who need it, Lord God, to, to step in, Lord God, with grace, to, to be radically um, kind, Lord God, to be radically rescuing, Father, in my actions. And I pray that we would be that and become that as a church, Lord Jesus. Amen.